Straight cash, homie. Would you please break the damn story? He took it out. Oh, for you. It's a Tuesday edition of the PFT PM podcast, audio and video style. Michael David Smith joins me as he always does in season on Tuesdays. MDS, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. It's good to talk to you as usual on a Tuesday. And we've got four weeks in to the 2019 regular season. We really don't know much other than the Patriots and the Chiefs seem to be operating at a level higher than everyone else. And inevitably, they'll meet on the field in the regular season, which will determine where the postseason rematch will be. But, you know, a lot of these teams can go either way. So many teams clustered in that three and one, two and two range and 12 games left for most of them to prove what they can or can't do. Is there a team you're eyeballing that can maybe pop out of that and challenge the Patriots and the Chiefs who seem to be the class of the NFL right now? Well, I want to see what happens in the NFC North. And I actually think that on that opening Thursday night when we saw the Bears play the Packers, we may have seen two teams that were a little better than we realized at the time. Obviously, Bears were coming off a very good year. Packers were kind of coming off a a disappointing year, obviously, which is why they have a new head coach. But I think both of those teams are going to show over the course of the season that they may be better than we gave them credit for. I wouldn't be surprised if one of those two teams is the team we see taking on maybe the Patriots or the Chiefs. And let me tell you, the NFC North chock full of teams that are at or above 500. The Vikings in fourth place with two and two record. They're good enough to win at home. They can't win big games, but they're going to win their fair share. The Lions are a force to be reckoned with. They almost beat the Chiefs and would have been 3-0-1. And And, uh, I agree with you. The Packers and the Bears may be better than we saw that first night. Everybody's kind of sluggish. Everybody's kind of tentative. Everybody feels that weight of the nation's eyes on them, and maybe it makes them a little tighter than they'd be later in the year. They'll get together again at Lambeau Field. And the Bears, even without Mitchell Trubisky, let me raise that one with you before we move on to the awards. Without Mitchell Trubisky, Chase Daniel, who has been playing forever, has made $34.3 million, and this will be his fifth start this weekend if, as it appears, he starts for the Bears against the Raiders in London. I think they're fine with Chase Daniel. That drives some Bears fans crazy. But instead of trying to figure out where Mitch Trubisky's ceiling is and maybe bouncing around with some not-so-stellar performances, Chase Daniel kind of keeps it very, very consistent. They know what they can do in the offense with him, and they just rely on their defense to win games. Yeah, and you know, something that I think that Bears coach Matt Nagy is quite good at is hiding what his quarterback doesn't do well. And I thought last year... He might have made Mitchell Trubisky look a little bit better than he really is because Matt Nagy is good at taking away what his quarterback doesn't do. Ideally, you want to have a great quarterback and do all the things he does really well. But when he's got kind of a mediocre quarterback, I think Matt Nagy is good at calling the plays that he can work out on and taking away anything that he's going to do poorly. And I actually think that Chase Daniel will be just fine for however long he's in there as the starting quarterback for the Bears. Hey, and that may be why Mitchell Trubisky's struggling this year because defensive coordinators breaking down last year's film, taking away the things that they want to do and forcing him in the direction of the things he's not good at. It's clear that he's a work in progress, and the Bears may have a problem down the road if Mitchell Trubisky never does get to a high ceiling. But for now, with that defense, 
Chase Daniel gives them an opportunity to win games and stay in contention in the NFC. All right, it's time for the week four awards. We're going to start with player of the week, then rookie of the week, then coach of the week, then call of the week. MDS, who is your player of the week? Well, I'm going to start with the team we were just talking about, the Chicago Bears, and I'm going to pick Khalil Mack. And I thought this was a really interesting game from Khalil Mack because the Bears were without Akeem Hicks. They were surprisingly without Roquan Smith. I think you could make a pretty good case. That's the second and third most important players on that Bears defense. And they didn't miss those two guys at all. And I thought Khalil Mack really played an excellent game. I thought the Vikings knew going in, he's the guy we have to stop from disrupting Kirk Cousins. And he disrupted him anyway. He had 1.5 sacks. He forced a fumble. And one of the things that amazes me about Khalil Mack this year is I actually thought, certainly I thought he was going to have a good year this year, but I thought he might have fewer of those really splashy plays, those highlight real plays. That hasn't been the case. He's on pace for more sacks than last year, more forced fumbles than last year. Khalil Mack is playing excellent football. He's my choice for player of the week. And it was funny watching that game on Sunday, right at the start of the second half. The Vikings were down 10 nothing. They got the opening kickoff. Tracy Wolfson filed her report from the sideline that Vikings coach Mike Zimmer continues to be committed to the run, confident they'll be able to run the ball. They know they need to run the ball. Cut to the action on the field. Kirk Cousins drops back for a pass. Khalil Max crushes him. Ball comes out. Bears get the ball 13 nothing. And at that point, the game's over because the Vikings wouldn't have scored 13 points if they had played 13 quarters, not just four. So I agree with you. Khalil Mack had a great performance. And the Bears, one of the reasons they're in very good hands because of his presence on the defensive side of the ball. I'm going to name a guy that I thought would win nothing this year. I thought that he would be on his way out of the National Football League and maybe to Major League Baseball as a potential middle reliever or at a minimum on the Tim Tebow one-man fantasy camp tour through the minor leagues with the hopes of willing his way at some point to Major League Baseball, and that would be Jameis Winston, the Buccaneers quarterback, who has finally found his groove. Week one against the 49ers, it didn't look good. The first half of the game against the Panthers, week two on Thursday night, both Jameis Winston and Cam Newton were sluggish. They were bad. It was an uninspiring performance. Then in the second half, Jameis Winston starts playing like Cam Newton. Cam Newton starts playing like Jameis Winston, and Winston hasn't looked back. They should have beaten the Giants, but for that ill-advised decision to take a five-yard penalty and push the field goal back that would have won the game for the Buccaneers, they would be 3-1. and one. But to go to L.A., and I had a God, I had a feeling, you know, sometimes I have a feeling and I know that it's flat out wrong. Other times I have a feeling and I just need to massage it and nurture it and go with it. I had a feeling the Buccaneers were going to win. I picked them to at least cover if that matters. But to go into L.A. and put on the performance that Jameis Winston did with, and I've got the numbers here, he had 41 passes, 28 completions, 385 yards, four touchdowns, one pick. Now it was a pick six, so that's fairly significant flaw on his part. But 120.5 passer rating. And let me do the math here real quick. He had uh, 9.3 yards per attempt. So he was moving the ball through the air well. He found Chris Godwin over and over again, 14 targets for 12 catches, 172 yards, and two touchdowns. Mike Evans was covered most of the time, although he had a touchdown later in the game. And Jameis Winston, with Bruce Arians' influence, blossoming into the guy that we thought he would be four years ago when he was a rookie. And, you know, for some of these guys, by year three, you know what they're going to be. And Winston had four years. 
to get to what we thought his maximum was. But in walks Bruce Arians with a plan for getting the most out of Jameis Winston. And so far, so good. They should be better than 2-2, two and two, but they're in great position to compete. And he gets to go back to the site this weekend of the E to W from two years ago. Back to the Superdome, where the Buccaneers ate a W without him last year in week one when he was suspended. This year, he's got a chance to go in there and take down Teddy Bridgewater, who's in for Drew Brees, and vault the Buccaneers to three and two. And that one's going to be a tough pick for me when we're doing this Wednesday night and Thursday morning because I have to reconsider everything about the Buccaneers after what we saw last weekend. Yeah, and uh, I will have more to say about that game with one of my later awards, but I'll just throw in there one other thing, which is that both of the top two picks who are now in their final years of their rookie contracts, Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota, they're both in this interesting situation where you can make a good argument that, yes, this guy has proven himself as the franchise quarterback, and you can also make a good argument that actually, if this team gives this guy a a huge second contract, they're going to come to regret it. And it's kind of a weird middle ground with both of those top two picks Winston and Mariota, because they both had some very good games, also both had some very bad games. Yeah, and both guys are in that spot where it's up or out. And if they don't do enough to convince the team that currently employs them to give them a second contract, where do they go from here? And and look, it's weird because this is the first time that we've seen quarterbacks make it to that fifth year without an extension, and they have to prove it. And you know, usually you're gone by then, or you have an extension by then. And this is like the old Terry Bradshaw thing where it took five years for the light to finally come on. In today's NFL, they don't give you five years for the light to come on. Mariota and Winston are both getting that fifth year to prove it. And so far, Winston definitely is. Mariota, it depends upon which week it is. They play well when they're supposed to lose. They play poorly when they're supposed to win. If he can become more consistent and stay healthy, then maybe they decide to keep him around as well. All right. Rookie of the week time for week four, MDS. Who do you have? Well, I'm going to go with one of the most uh, fun players of this NFL season, and that's Gardner Minshew. Uh, We've talked about him before, but he's just having a great, great year at a time when no one was expecting it. The Jaguars certainly did not draft him thinking he was going to be their starting quarterback. They thought he was a long-term developmental prospect. Obviously, if Nick Foles were still healthy, he would not be on the field. But he's doing everything they could ask of him and more. And I think the most interesting thing to me, as we saw him uh, uh, really take command of that offense in Sunday's win over the Broncos, is he has not thrown a single interception in the three games that he started. He did throw one in the game when he came on in relief of Foles after he got hurt. But no interceptions in the three games he started. And that, to me, is so impressive. It shows what a smart player he is, what a, how competent he is at running an offense. And it, to me, it's really exciting to see, and it also is going to be very interesting to see what happens when Nick Foles is healthy again. Because if Gardner Minshew keeps playing like this, I don't think Nick Foles gets his job back. Yeah, and see, Nick Foles has no equity built up in Jacksonville like a Carson Wentz had in Philadelphia, where when he's healthy, he's the guy. And so Nick Foles ends up falling victim to the Gardner Minshew mania. And and at some point, we're going to hear 100% rule or some variation of that, where Nick Foles will be back when he's 100%. We may hear the same thing about Mitchell Trubisky. He'll be back when he's 100%. Well, when's he 100%? When the guy that 
has replaced him cools off and we're ready to put the other guy back on the field. Then you get the benefit of a de facto benching of the starter followed by a de facto benching of the backup when the backup deserves to be benched if that ever happens. So I think Gardner Minshew looks like he's good enough to carry this team moving forward. And that would be the ultimate irony for the Jacksonville Jaguars. They go out and buy a quarterback. They think he's going to be the difference maker. And it's a sixth rounder that they end up squatting on in the next draft a month after they sign Nick Foles that ends up making the difference and carrying the team. And as long as Leonard Fournette, who I seriously consider for player of the week, is rushing for 225 yards, you could bring back Blake Bortles. You could bring back Mark Brunel, for crying out loud, to play quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars because you're going to win games if Fournette is running the way that he was this past Sunday versus running in quicksand that prior Thursday against the Tennessee Titans. All right, speaking of the Tennessee Titans, I've got to give some credit to A.J. Brown, the other Mississippi receiver, the one that didn't get the same publicity that D.K. Metcalf did because D.K. Metcalf looks like he was drawn by a – Uh, you know, an artist who does superhero comics. Everything about the guy, defined and cut and huge, and he had all the measurables, and he's the guy that's captured the fascination of so many fans going into the draft. He got drafted after A.J. Brown. A.J. Brown went number 51. Metcalf went number 64. And when I would look up and watch any of the Titans-Falcons game on Sunday, it seemed like there he was, number 11, for for the Titans, doing something. He finished the day with a couple of touchdowns. He had a 55 yarder. And he's a big Julio Jones fan. Well, he outperformed Julio Jones on Sunday and contributed to that 24-10 victory. Two touchdown margin, two touchdowns scored by A.J. Brown in that game. He had three catches for 94 yards and the two touchdowns. And it's funny, I wanted to see how both guys are doing, A.J. Brown with the Titans and D.K. Metcalf with the Seahawks, because we'd heard more buzz from Metcalf so far this year. They both have 10 catches through four games. They both have exactly 223 yards through four games. Metcalf has one touchdown, and Brown has two touchdowns. So they're almost on the exact same track, but A.J. Brown gets Rookie of the Week for me because he was the difference maker for the Titans when they went to Atlanta, and it was one of those games they shouldn't have won, and those are the games they win. And then when it's the game they should win, that's when they'll lose. But at least for now, they win, and A.J. Brown looked good in the process. Yeah, and you, as you say, the Titans are a very tough team to figure out. I mean, they dominated the Browns in week one uh, and looked very good in Atlanta this week, and yet they've also looked really bad in their other two games. So it, it, it is really tough to figure. Uh, it, a quarter of the way into the season, still feels like there are a lot of teams we haven't figured out yet, and I think that's one of them. And I think that's part of the fun. E- even though when – We're in the business of, at times, prognosticating, and people want to know what we think as to who's going to win a game. It fluctuates so wildly every given week, and when you think you've figured a team out, you find out that you haven't, but that is part of the fun, seeing outcomes that defy conventional wisdom and force you to go back to square one and reassess who these teams are. And we see it every year. Teams will get better or teams will get worse from week one through week 17. Rarely, if ever, do they stay the same unless they are just excellent out of the gates like the Patriots and the Chiefs and barring major injury will continue to play that way. Okay, Coach O the Week, MDS, you're up first. Well, I hinted at this earlier, but my Coach of the Week is Bruce Arians. And you talked about Jameis Winston earlier, and I really think the single biggest issue facing the Buccaneers this year. It's not even, can they finally get to the playoffs? Can they get over the hump in the NFC South? 
it is all about can Jameis Winston be the definitive starting franchise quarterback that we thought he was when we made him the first overall pick in the draft. And that is Bruce Arians' job to get him there. That's what Bruce Arians was hired to do. Bruce Arians said right when he got the job that he embraces that challenge, that he thinks highly of Jameis Winston and always has and believes he can be a great NFL quarterback. So far, Bruce Arians looks like he's getting that job done. And, you know, we've seen Bruce Arians do it in, in Indianapolis and in Arizona. He just has a way with getting teams to, to get the most out of their ability. And he, he's particularly good working with quarterbacks. And, and I have to say, he's done a very good job so far in Tampa Bay. Obviously, four weeks in, lots can change. But right now, I think Bruce Arians has to be lauded for the job he's done. Yeah, and look, I was down on Bruce Arians last week after the the decision, if it really was a decision, to let the clock run out after they spiked the ball, after Mike Evans made the catch that put them in position to win the game, and the idea of taking the delay and then moving the ball into the middle of the field and making it a 34-yard kick that Matt Gay missed in a game that they should have won. But, but if he continues to press the buttons with Jameis Winston, and if they continue to produce in the passing game the way that they are, the Buccaneers will be a factor this year, and Bruce Arians will help make Jameis Winston a lot of money, and Bruce Arians will secure a future for himself in Tampa for as long as he wants it, and he will help guys like Byron Leftwich become NFL head coaches for the first time and Todd Bowles to get an opportunity to become a head coach again as the Buccaneers thrive unlike they have in years. It's been a long time since they went to the playoffs, and they could be. For a while there, they were a trendy pick to get back to the playoffs, and they had that year, 2016, Winston's second year, where they went on a nice winning streak. They had a Sunday night game at Dallas that got flexed into primetime that they really had their opportunity to prove to everyone that they were ready to compete, and it fell apart then. They're building it back up again, and they're in a division where who the hell knows what's going to happen. The Falcons 1-3, and three, the Panthers are 2-2 two and two with Kyle Allen playing, and you've got the Saints at 3-1 and one, holding it together with Teddy Bridgewater. It's there for the taking, and this is the opportunity this weekend for Arians and the Buccaneers to try to get themselves into first place in the division. All right, my coach of the week, speaking of the NFC South, when Drew Brees – busted up his thumb in week two against the Rams. I thought it was going to be a very difficult few weeks for the New Orleans Saints. They had to go to Seattle to play the Seahawks without Drew Brees. Then they had to come home and face the Cowboys without Drew Brees. So I'm thinking, all right, you weather the storm, and then you hope to get your wins after that. You're going to be one and three, but maybe you can dig out of it, and maybe you can hold on until Drew Brees comes back and then pile up some wins then. And don't look now, but what we've seen from Sean Payton the last two weeks is coach of the year type stuff to go into Seattle and win. And yeah, it was kind of a fluky game, but they went into Seattle and they won and they won convincingly, even though the final score was closer than the butt whipping would suggest. And then to play the Cowboys who we had anointed, I had anointed best team in the NFC. I mean, yeah, they hadn't beaten anybody, but the Patriots hadn't beaten anybody either. And they're still the best team in the AFC, but the Cowboys walked into that buzzsaw. The saints were ready to match them with physicality on both sides of the ball And Sean Payton is designing an offense that does not expect Teddy Bridgewater to go beyond his physical abilities. It's all intended to match what he can do. And yeah, he got sacked more times than I would have liked, especially given the history with the knee injury. You kind of cringe every time he gets hit because of what happened to him when he didn't get hit back in August 2016. 
But it's it's fascinating to see what Peyton is doing without Drew Brees. And here's what it's setting up. It's setting up one hell of a dilemma for the Saints after this season. They've said they're taking it year to year with Drew Brees. And Drew Brees turns 41 on January 15th. And Teddy Bridgewater did a one-year deal. He'll be a free agent again after this season. If you are the Saints, which guy do you pick? If you have to pick one or the other, do you nudge Drew Brees into retirement? Do you run the risk that he's going to go play for someone else? Or do you run the risk that you're going to lose Teddy Bridgewater and have to groom someone else to be the guy? And I'm not saying that Bridgewater's been so overwhelming that he's the long-term answer, but he could be a hell of a, no pun intended, bridge quarterback from Drew Brees to whoever Sean Payton would develop if Taysom Hill does become Steve Young or if they find somebody else because it's clear Sean Payton's sticking around now with his new contract. So I think Payton has done a masterful job of willing this team to victory. And the other thing that I like about this, the Drew Brees injury and the way they've dealt with it, this has been the ultimate deodorant for the dark cloud that was hanging over the team from the Ram Saints game, from the Minneapolis Miracle. You know, when, when you're tempted to think, oh, God, you know, look, we've had two great playoff runs and we get our heart broken both times and what's the point? It's just going to happen again. All that's gone when Drew Brees gets, in, gets injured and it's battle stations and everybody's got to focus and try to win games without him. And, and I think this has been the perfect thing for the Saints to do a full reset, focus on the now, focus on the moment, focus on one game at a time, do what they have to do to win. And I picked them to not make it to the playoffs this year, and I'm probably going to be wrong about that because they look good. And maybe it's going to come down to Saints-Buccaneers. Maybe these two games between New Orleans and Tampa will decide who wins the division and maybe who doesn't get in at all, given that there are plenty of other competent teams out there that you may not be able to secure a wildcard berth when competing with their final record. But the Saints doing better than I thought, far better than I thought, with Drew Brees out and uh, Sean Payton for me, that makes him coach of the week. It's kind of a two-week award, but to beat the Cowboys in primetime the way they did, low-scoring physical game, I got to give it to Sean Payton. Yeah, and I think Sean Payton is a bit like what we said about Matt Nagy. He can run an offense in a way that takes advantage of what his quarterback can do and avoids what his quarterback can't do. And I think Teddy Bridgewater, no one expects him to have the complete command of the offense that Drew Brees has after all these years of working with Sean Payton, but Sean Payton calls the plays to take advantage of what Teddy Bridgewater can do. He avoids mistakes. He avoids turnovers. He, he got a very good game out of their defense on Sunday night, and that really helped, obviously. I agree. Sean Payton did a very good job, and it, it will be interesting to see what this Saints team looks like when Drew Brees comes back because they may be in much better shape than we were expecting. And, and it, it'll be very interesting to see. I don't think there's any chance that Drew Brees doesn't get the job back. Uh, like we were saying with Gardner Minshew and Nick Foles, but I do think there's a chance that we come back, that he comes back and we say, Hey, saints were just fine without him. And this saints team isn't just Drew Brees. This is a good team from top to bottom. Yeah, and, and then 2020, what in the world do you do if Drew Brees wants to keep playing, but the Saints decide that they're going to be the ones that remove the Band-Aid and move forward? You know, one of these older quarterbacks is not going to get to leave on his own terms. We've already seen it with Eli Manning, that the Giants have ripped the baton out of his hand while he's still on the team. And it's so weird to watch a Giants game and see Daniel Jones come to the sidelines conferring with a guy with the gold C on his, on his jersey. But one of these other guys, you know, it may be end of the year. Sorry, 
whether it's Brady, whose contract expires after this year, Breeze, Phillip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, one of these other guys I think isn't going to get to walk away on his own terms, and maybe it ultimately will be Drew Brees. Okay, call of the week time for week four of the 2019 NFL season. MDS, who do you have? Well, I'll start with a brief preamble of you remember two weeks ago there was a Rams was it a fumble? Was it an incomplete pass that the Saints appeared to have run back 90 yards for a touchdown, except, oh, wait, the officials had blown the play dead by mistake. Well, I got to give credit to that same officiating crew that was in Detroit this past week, and there was a similar play that they didn't blow dead. on Johnson of the Lions fumbled right just short of the goal line. Brashad Breland picked it up ran 100 yards. A lot of players on both teams thought the play was over and didn't give chase, but the officials let the play go. That's what you're supposed to do. And replays showed that it actually was a fumble. Breland picked it up without anyone else touching him while he was on his knee scooping the ball up. It it was a fumble return for a touchdown. It was the definitive play of the game. I mean, if it, it was a basically a 14-point swing because the Lions would add the ball at about the one-inch line on the next play, if he had been ruled down, probably score seven points on the next play, turns into the Chiefs scoring seven points. It's effectively a 14-point swing in a game the Chiefs end up winning by four. So it was the definitive play of the game. The officials got it right by not blowing it dead, so I give them the call of the week. The only flaw in that approach, when you rely too heavily on replay to fix it after the fact, If there isn't a truly definitive view, you get yourself into a spot where there isn't clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field was incorrect. That's my only concern Um, because it really was hard to see um, whether or not the ball was clearly and plainly out. And it's different when it's in a cluster of bodies than when it's a quarterback who gets hit in the open field and it's obvious that the ball was out or it wasn't. You can go back and you can watch it and you have a clear answer if the arm's moving forward, whatever the case may be. The other, the other concern I have here, if they're wired to let it play out and in that chase to the end zone the other way, if somebody would get injured and then they come back and say, oh, you know what, the guy was down, the play was dead – That's unfortunate if that ever happens. And you're adding in extra activity, an extended rep, extended opportunities for guys to get injured if you are going to err on the side of letting the play keep going. I still think it's fine. I think it's better that way because it's horribly unfair if you got that call wrong to give the Chiefs the ball at the two instead of giving them six points. But that, that's my concern. If you go too far in that direction and, and rely on replay to fix it, you may not get a good look or you may get somebody injured on one of those plays where if you had just focused on getting the call right, you would have blown it dead and the play wouldn't have continued. All right, my call of the week, another officiating, not criticism, it's a reality. And I think the sooner that the coaches accept reality when it comes to replay review of pass interference, the better off they'll be. We saw on Thursday night Marquez Valdez-Scantling waiting for a ball to arrive and Avante Maddox hitting him clearly early putting a hand into his chin and repositioning the body of Valdez-Scantling before the ball came into the frame. It was challenged by the Packers because it wasn't called defensive pass interference on the field. Via replay review, Al Riveron, the senior VP of officiating, determined that the ruling on the field stands. I couldn't believe it. 
a lot of people couldn't couldn't believe it. Tony Dungy from Football Night in America was very candid with his criticism. And look, at first I thought it was an Al Riveron thing, and I do believe that some people in the league office think that that play should have been overturned. But in the aftermath, I've learned more about what's really going on in the upper reaches of the NFL as it relates to when they're going to use this proverbial red button to overturn bad calls. And the message to all the coaches out there is, unless it's essentially a Rams-Saints play with Nikel Roby Coleman blowing up Tommy Lee Lewis, don't throw your flag. Don't, don't even think about it. Because I'm not sure exactly where the line is, but it's a hell of a lot closer to Rams-Saints than it is to what Al Riveron led us to believe it was going to be, which is, I'm going to take a fresh look at this video, and if I see clear and obvious evidence of significant hindrance, I'm going to put a flag on the ground. That's not the standard. Somebody went to him and said, the standard is much higher. Now, through time, we'll get a better idea of what the standard is, what the line is, but it's much higher. And it shocked me, MDS, that Doug Peterson, later in that same quarter, threw the red flag to challenge Kenny King hitting Alshon Jeffrey early because it wasn't as egregious as the Valdez-Scantling play. And unless Peterson's just thinking that Al Riveron is using a magic eight ball, which, in fairness, may be the approach we'll see over time, but unless Peterson just thought he was going to get lucky, he wasn't going to get that call. And, and I raise that also because the flip side is, and this is something that the coaches knew or should have known, when pass interference is called on the field, Downfield pass interference, not not the blocking within one yard, because we saw one of those picked up on Thursday night. But what we saw last night with the Steelers receiver called for offensive pass interference, unless your people see that there was no contact whatsoever and it's just a phantom foul, do not throw the red flag because there's never going to be enough evidence, clear, obvious, or otherwise, to overturn the judgment of the official when there is any contact. And we saw the hand into the back of the defensive back, and it wasn't a dramatic shove. It wasn't a t- pull him down to the ground. It wasn't even necessarily a clear example of evidence of gaining separation. But as long as there's contact, Riveron is never going to pick a flag up. And Mike Tomlin, who's on the competition committee, and when he spoke to the media today, he feigned ignorance about how all this works. He should know exactly what I'm talking about in that Al Riveron is never picking that flag up. So um, the, the point is, and Sean Payton said this after the Sunday night game, only throw that flag when it's egregious if the ruling on the field is no interference. If the ruling is interference, you better be able to see that there was no contact whatsoever before you even dare throwing the red, throw the red flag. So it looks like they're trying to craft this thing into truly the worst-case scenario break glass in event of emergency, Rams-Saints type situation, and nothing else. But the problem is, MDS, because of the way that it was explained to the media, and it was members of NFL media that first blew the whistle on this. I don't mean that to relate in any way to other events happening in the world. But when Al Riveron met with people from NFL media and guys like Mike Giardi and Rich Eisen started to tell everyone, Hey, in Al Riveron's world, this play from last year, Chargers Chiefs would be interference. Super Bowl 53, Stephon Gilmore grabbing the arm of Brandon Cooks would be interference, even though Cooks got his arms through and still had his hands in position to catch the ball. That made us all think this thing's going to be micromanaged. And now we know it's not. And now we know that you should only consider challenging 
in very, very rare occasions. And I think, look, it's upset people because we were led to believe one thing and now it's something else. But I think where we are is good. I just wish we would have been there from square one. Yeah, and it's one of the kind of philosophical questions about instant replay is what is the standard supposed to be? Is it supposed to be if we think we got it right by changing the call on the field, is that a good reason to change the call on the field? Or is it only if we know we got it right by changing the call on the field, are we going to change the call on the field? And and I think Al Riveron wants coaches to expect only to get a change if they know that their challenge is correct and that the call on the field was incorrect. And if it's even up for debate, Al Riveron wants to say, I'm going to make the call stand because I don't want this to be the major change to the way officiating is done that a lot of people thought it would be. And I don't think that's his call. I think it came from his boss or his boss's boss. But regardless, Al Riveron saw it one way and told people that's the way it was going to be. And at some point between the end of the preseason and the start of the regular season, he was told by someone, probably Roger Goodell, that bar is going higher. So again, at least we know. And I wish we'd known before week one because the problem now is, as fans and as media, we are scrutinizing these calls much more than we ever would have before. We wouldn't have talked about Avante Maddox and Marquez Valdez-Scantling beyond the 30 seconds or so after that play ended, right? Because they just would have moved on to the next play and there would have been some complaints on Twitter. Hey, that was interference, but you just move on like we always did when it was these minor interference calls that didn't have the stakes of the NFC Championship game and didn't have the egregious nature of the hit where the guy just got flattened as he was waiting to catch the football and maybe walk in for a touchdown that would have decided the game. So that, to me, is is the, the problem with this. Expectations were created that it was going to be a certain way, and now it's not. But now we are hyper-aware of all the instances where, hey, maybe this should be interference. And the sooner and, – and look, we're trying to do a service. I'm not doing this intentionally, but it's a service to the fans and the people who are paying attention to get the word out that – Quit worrying about the close ones. The close ones aren't going to get overturned. They're not going to invade the judgment of the officials there. It's only going to be in the most obvious and egregious cases where the ruling on the field gets overturned. All right. Uh, Enough of that. Let me remind you before we move forward that one out of four car batteries will fail this winter. Get your battery tested for free during Superstar Battery Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. If it needs to be replaced, O'Reilly has the Superstar Battery for you. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every single day. Okay, let's move on. Time to answer some questions. And before I can answer questions, I have to find the window that I had opened, keyword had opened, that had the tweet with all of our questions. I'm going to have to find it again. This is kind of a lull in the broadcast. I've got it right should... in front of me. You want me to read it. Well, if you want to find one, go ahead. Read one, and then I'll catch up to you. Uh, so from PFTPM Posse, he wants to know, do you see any big-name players outside of maybe Trent Williams or maybe Jalen Ramsey being traded before the trade deadline this year? 
You know, one name that I keep an eye on is Stephon Diggs of the Vikings because I made this point last week. They're not getting value out of him in the passing game that they aren't using the way that they could or should. They would clear up some cap money for next year. They would take a cap charge of $9 million in 2020, but they would save cash. They would create some cap space then. They'd create some cap space now, the balance of his $8.9 million salary, and he's just a luxury they can't afford. And I, I, I'm waiting for the eruption from Stephon Diggs. Now that Adam Thielen has kind of broken ranks a little bit and, and shared his views on what's going on with the passing game, I feel like the next time Stephon Diggs feels frustrated, he's going to be inclined to do the same. You see cryptic tweets from him from time to time that suggest – Maybe he's not thrilled. It's hard to tell. They're too cryptic to really come to any strong conclusions. He doesn't drop the same kind of hints that an Antonio Brown would on Twitter. But that is a guy that I'm keeping an eye on. And we've got four weeks left. It's the Tuesday after week four. The Tuesday after week eight is when the window closes for the year. And I, I, I could see Stephon Diggs plus the first rounder for Jalen Ramsey. Maybe that gets... Ramsey out of Jacksonville and to Minnesota, assuming Minnesota is intrigued by having Jalen Ramsey on the team. You know, the Vikings are very good at taking low-drafted and undrafted corners and turning them into good players via the coaching of Mike Zimmer and his staff. But if Jalen Ramsey's available and you're moving on from Stephon Diggs and you want a player now that is going to help you win, I'd say Jalen Ramsey would be a guy for the Vikings to target. No question about it. You know, I'll just throw something out there. I had someone ask me specifically about could Kirk Cousins be traded? And my answer to that question is no one wants to trade for that contract. The, the the contract that the Vikings gave Kirk Cousins is just not a contract that any other team wants to take on. It's not, he's not playing well enough that you think he's going to step right in and immediately take your team to the playoffs. And then if you're a rebuilding team, you, you want a young guy who's going to be under contract for five more years that you get in the first round of the draft not a veteran who's only got one more year. So I can't see Kirk Cousins being traded, not because the Vikings wouldn't do it, because no other team would do it. Let me add one caveat to that, because you're absolutely right. No one's going to want to take on the balance of what he's due to make this year, plus $29.5 million in fully guaranteed salary for next year. And if you trade for him, that's the cap number that you're strapped with unless you would extend the contract. Here's the caveat. And I am reluctant to say this, because I don't want to be accused of applying a jinx to anyone. But if Jimmy Garoppolo gets injured between now and week eight, Kirk Cousins potentially ends up becoming a member of the 49ers and Kyle Shanahan gets the guy he wanted all along. It would have to be another ACL or some sort of a season-ending injury. But if lightning strikes again for the 49ers and Jimmy Garoppolo, especially because they have a team that is competitive this year, they could get Kirk Cousins from the Vikings for not a whole lot, and then maybe the Vikings turn around and swing a deal with Washington for Case Keenum, bring him back, and install him into that offense with Dalvin Cook and company. And that's the, that, that is a, a very thin, camel-through-the-eye-of-a-needle type of a possibility. But other than that, there's no way anyone wants Kirk Cousins. And I've been talking about this 2020 scenario I've been calling it the play now scenario where Costanza is under contract and 
He knows if he stays, he gets it all. And Kirk Cousins isn't going to walk away. He's not going to take less than $29.5 million to quit the Vikings and move on and become a free agent. And if the Vikings would trade him, they'd have to pay half of his salary or more. Or maybe they got to do a Brock Osweiler deal where they have to throw in a first-round pick to get somebody to take that $29.5 million off of their books. So the Vikings have a mess. And the one bit of hope that's – and you, I don't know. Do they sit around and talk about this? I don't know, but we do. Do they think about it? I don't know. But Kyle Shanahan's the one guy, other than Sean McVay, who would embrace Kirk Cousins. And I, I don't know that I would put Cousins into the equation if something would happen to Jared Goff because they're stuck with Goff's new contract. But with Garoppolo, it would be easier for the 49ers to sever ties after this year – and keep Kirk Cousins. And I think that's exactly what would happen if there would be a serious injury to Jimmy Garoppolo over the next four weeks. And 49ers fans, if it happens, I'm just we're just spitballing here. We're not trying to jinx anybody. We're trying to identify the one scenario where there would be a Kirk Cousins trade. And now they're all going to be pissed off at me if Jimmy Garoppolo tears an ACL. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, but we like we, we were asked hypothetically about what trades could happen, and we're just throwing out some possibilities. All right, I got the window open here. Let's see what else we have. There's a question about Stephon Diggs that we don't need to address because we already have. Dean Osborne, 42. Was Cam Newton so candid about his injuries because he was annoyed at the Panthers for maybe pressuring him to try and fight through the injuries in playing? Um, I... I don't think that's the case. I get the impression that Cam Newton really did keep to himself how badly his foot was bothering him. I think it was foolish for the Panthers to not be paying closer attention to the signs and the signals. Newton said he was limping at practice. Newton said on the the, the day of the first game of the season he couldn't run around the field and, and mark his territory. Thank God he doesn't literally mark his territory before games. But um, I, I think the Panthers should have known something was up. I think they maybe were hesitant to approach Cam Newton about it, because if they just said, Cam, are you okay? He'd say, yeah, I'm okay. Why? And uh, now we know that his foot was bothering him. Now we have reason to think maybe the Panthers were deliberately ignorant of the condition of the foot. But I got a problem with Cam Newton for, number one, saying what he said on that video, but also for not being candid with the team and saying, I don't believe I can perform at the level I need to. I'm going to tap out here and Kyle Allen should play. Because maybe they would have beaten the Buccaneers week two. I don't think they would have beaten the Rams. But maybe they would have beaten Tampa, and maybe they'd be 3-1 and one right now, MDS. Yeah, I think there's a very good chance that they would have. And uh, I really don't know where this is all going to end up with Cam Newton and Carolina because I just get the feeling that both sides would like a fresh start. And especially if Kyle Allen keeps playing as well as he has so far, it would be very easy for the Panthers to say, this is our guy now, and we're, we're ready for Cam Newton to be somewhere else. And maybe Cam Newton would say, yeah, I agree. I'm ready to be somewhere else, too. All right. Dean Osborne, 42, has another question. Will Frank Gore make the Hall of Fame, and should he just be based on numbers and longevity when there is a plethora of better running backs around him from the same era? I love Gore but the bar for entry must surely be higher than a very, very good player who just played long enough to pad stats. Let me address that one because the idea that Frank Gore has been able to play the position of running back for as long as he has and to generate 15,000 yards and to be within 250 yards of passing Barry Sanders, which, barring a career-ending injury over the next three or four games, he will achieve. 
how do you deny him entry into the Hall of Fame in an era where no one has the longevity to even get close to Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, or Emmett Smith-type numbers? Of course he's a Hall of Famer. And longevity is critical when we're talking about a position where, what, two, three years is the average stint for a running back? So, hell yes, Frank Gore's a Hall of Famer. And I think longevity does matter. And I think career stats do matter. And there's not going to be anyone else out of that era, not even Adrian Peterson, who is even close to being in the top three all-time MDS. Yeah, and, you know, longevity is uh, a, a, an important part of looking at a player's career. And when when people sometimes talk about, like, well, he just stuck around and padded his stats, I, I wonder what they really mean. Because, you know, Emmett Smith would have loved to have stuck around even longer, but he just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, Walter Payton by his last year really couldn't do it anymore. Walter Payton wasn't even the Bears starter at the end. You know, Neil Anderson had replaced the, the, the legendary Bear Walter Payton as the main running back. The Cowboys had moved on from Emmett Smith. He was a Cardinal now. It It's hard to be able to stick around, especially at that position, into now your late 30s. So, you know, to me to say, well, well, it's just longevity, well, it's not really just longevity, but even if it were, longevity is an impressive part of a player's career when you've had the longevity that Frank Gore has had. I mean, think about the position. Think about the demands. Chris Sims calls this car crash territory all the time. You've got the ball. You are being hit hard. And he entered the NFL in 2005. He had four years before the NFL had its concussion epiphany. They were banging everyone around even harder then. And he's been here through the gradual changes of the rules that have made the game safer. He took a ton of abuse physically. And when I look at his yearly games played, he, he appeared in 14 games as a rookie. He missed one game in 2007, two in 2008, two in 2009, five in 2010. Since then... Since 2010, he has missed two total games. He's gotten more durable as time has gone by. It is freak of nature territory to think that this guy at this age is still doing what he did. And if you saw him perform against the Patriots on Sunday, against the best defense right now in the NFL, Frank Gore, it's, it's an amazing story. He's an amazing talent. And just like Tom Brady who has shown no sign of slowing down at 47, it's more impressive that Frank Gore is showing no sign of slowing down at age 36. 36 for a running back is, you know, that's dog years. Uh, and, and it's amazing to me that there are people who raise these questions about whether or not he deserves a bronze bust and a gold jacket. Of course he does, MDS. Yeah, really, you know, the only other running back I think we've seen who has played this late now at 36 is Marcus Allen and a big difference between Marcus Allen and Frank Gore was there were those weird years with the Raiders where there was some personality clash between Al Davis and Marcus Allen and Al Davis was ordering his coaches I don't want Marcus Allen to be featured in our offense keep him on the bench you know give him two carries a game um, so Marcus Allen hadn't taken the pounding that Frank Gore has taken. There really hasn't been a running back who has consistently started 16 games a year now into his mid and even late 30s before Frank Gore. 
Yeah, I think Frank Gore is going to make it to the Hall of Fame, and I think he should make it on the first ballot, especially because, you know, I know the voters like to have a good cross-section of representation of positions. And other than Adrian Peterson, right, who's the other lock coming out of the last 15 years? Marshawn Lynch has an argument to be made, but I think Frank Gore should be at or close to the front of the line. At least he made it to a Super Bowl. Adrian Peterson didn't even make it to a Super Bowl. And frankly, and I love Adrian Peterson, it pains me to say it, but for his inability to hold on to the football in the 2009 NFC Championship game, he would have made it to a Super Bowl. All right, next question. A Red Zone Alk, our friend from across the pond in the UK, is the Cliff Kingsbury experiment in Arizona a failure or is it still too early to say? MDS, what do you think? <laughs> Way too early to call it a failure. And I actually like a lot of what Cliff Kingsbury is doing. I think they've taken over in a situation where the offensive line still isn't good. And, and that's a significant problem. I think Kyler Murray is being forced to move around maybe more than Cliff Kingsbury would want. I think some people think Cliff Kingsbury really wants Kyler Murray to be on the move. I actually don't think that's really the case. I think it's been more by necessity than by design. I also think it's valid to criticize them in the red zone. They've had a few times when they've gotten first and goal and ended up settling for field goals after not doing much in the red zone. So, you know, there are, there are some individual things you can criticize about Cliff Kingsbury, but I actually think the offense is showing signs of life and I think might be pretty good by the end of the season once they've really had some time to, to gel. Uh, so I, I certainly think it's way too early to say it hasn't worked. I still think there's a very good chance it will work. See, my concern is that this obsession with keeping it under wraps until the regular season began and now it's out there and Sim studies the film of all these games and he says that there's really nothing innovative or special about it and people can see what they're doing and people can adapt to it. Too many plays out of shotgun formation makes it impossible to have an effective running game because basically you're your, your running back is always starting from standing still when he gets the football. You like to get the guy from time to time getting ahead of steam either on a stretch play or a run up the middle or something where they get the ball out of the standard set where the quarterback's getting the snap from right under center. But I, I am concerned about how this is going to play out. And I don't know that they have the talent to be significantly better than they've been so far. Their games have gotten worse. You know, they had the tie against the Lions. They... They gave the Ravens a much better game than we we think because we just think, ah, oh, they were supposed to lose and they lost. It was 23-17. They had the ball a couple of times late. They weren't able to do anything with it. They could have gone ahead with, you know, not much time left for the Ravens to do anything about it. But then the last two weeks, it hasn't been good. And I think it's got the potential to continue to dissolve. And the guy to watch in all of this is Kyler Murray because in his entire high school and college career, he lost three games. In the month of September, the first month of his NFL career, he lost three games. He's got zero wins. How frustrated will he get? And, and this was the same mindset that applied with Jameis Winston early in his career. When you have a level of skill, and Murray's got even more than Winston when it comes to baseball, when you have the ability to play two different sports at a high level and you get attracted to one of them because you're really good and it's really easy and everything's going your way and you're playing at the highest level and it's exciting and it's fun and you get to the next level and it's not exciting, it's not fun, it's not rewarding, you're not winning. 
how long until you say, that's it, I'm going to go play baseball instead? Now, it's too early to have that conversation, but if this track continues and next year's the same, at what point? I had somebody say to me half jokingly a couple of weeks ago, two years from now, everybody there will be fired and Kyler Murray will be playing baseball. So we'll see whether or not that prediction's right. But that's the thing to watch. And that was a point Peter King made back in April before he was drafted. And some people called him out for it. They thought it was a stupid take. I think it's a great take. Kyler Murray's never faced adversity on a football field. How will he deal with it? Will he still like football? You know, he doesn't have that dynamic personality. He just kind of goes with whatever, you know, and that's fine. That's who you are, right? But I could see him getting irritated and frustrated with football. And uh, at some point, he's going to have to ask himself a tough question. Am I willing to continue to pound my head against the wall if I feel like this isn't going to work at the NFL level for me? Or will I go find, you know, success or not playing another sport? MDS, got anything to add? I I think Kyler Murray is committed to football, and I think I think Cliff Kingsbury can get the most out of Kyler Murray's talents. I think I think people are shoveling dirt on Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury after four games. I think you're going to be surprised by what they do together. I, my, my attitude is let's watch and let's wait and let's see. It has not gotten off to a good start. It's on them to try to get it better from this point forward. But for these teams that are not playing well. The challenge is the equivalent of changing a tire on a moving car, and that's what they're going to have to do. Now, they'll have a bye week at some point where they can take a step back and maybe maybe assess where they are and what they need to do, but for now, it's troubling. And uh, they were close the first couple of weeks, but it's going the wrong way, and they need to turn it around sooner rather than later. All right, a couple more before we wrap this up. How about this one? Because MDS, sources close to me, tell me that you hate the Lions. At all happy teams – at the quarter poll, would the Lions be the clear favorite in the NFC North if they weren't the Lions? Last three games were against two divisional round teams and the AFC runners-up, and they did beat the Chargers, they did beat uh, the Eagles, and they gave the Chiefs everything they could handle. And, uh, yeah, should we feel differently about the Lions, and would we feel differently about the Lions if, if the guys that had accomplished what the Lions have accomplished were the Packers or the Bears? There is certainly some truth to that, that we are so accustomed to the Lions not being a good team that we may be slow to accept them being a good team. But I think the issue is just that the division is really strong top to bottom. We, we don't have a team with a losing record in the division. The worst is the Vikings at 2-2, two and two, and both of those losses are two other teams in the division. I think the problem facing the Lions is we're going to find that the Bears and the Packers are both very good teams, and I don't think the Lions are going to keep up with them. So I couldn't call them favorites in the NFC North, even though they clearly have outperformed expectations. I mean, they were underdogs three of their four games. The last three, they won two of them. Now, they were also favorites in the game. They tied against the Cardinals, so that one you can hold against them. But They have certainly exceeded expectations. I don't think they've exceeded expectations enough to call them the favorites in the division. Yeah, and you know, I said before the season, in the NFC North, any of the four teams can win it, and any of the four teams can finish in fourth place. And four games in, that's exactly how it's shaping up. Because, look, even though the Vikings have lost to the Packers and the Bears, they get them at home later. The Lions have played neither 
the Packers, the Bears, or on top of that, the Vikings. There's a lot of cross-pollination in the division still to happen, and this is one where you could end up 9-7 and seven and fourth place in the division and no shot whatsoever of getting a wild-card berth. And we could see both the five-seed and the six-seed come out of the NFC North, although the teams in the NFC West may have something to say about that. All right, let's do one more. This one comes from Skoll Mitzel. Should, and, and this kind of takes us back to the first question because there's a big name in here or two that we hadn't considered as possible trade bait. Should the Broncos trade Vaughn Miller, Chris Harris Jr., Emmanuel Sanders, and start tanking? What do you think? I don't think so. I, I think the Broncos have players that they can feel like we could win with in the not-too-distant future I don't think those are the teams that need to tank. I think that when I look at the Broncos, I don't categorize them as being in the Cincinnati, Washington, Miami category. I think Denver is actually a better team than we think. You know, if a Jacksonville field goal and a Chicago field goal had missed, they'd be two and two. They they played close games, competitive games. They haven't been getting blown out like Washington, Miami, and Cincinnati. So no. I do not think Denver is the team that needs to tank. Well, and here's the other thing, too. You can't tank if the guy who's in charge of the football operations becomes in greater danger of getting fired if you do tank. Now, if Brittany Bolin, who likely will eventually win this bizarro intra-family Willy Wonka competition and be given the keys to the chocolate factory, if she's on board with it, and is on board with keeping John Elway around to let him try to dig out of this mess, then to the extent you could get a first-round pick or more for Vaughn Miller, to the extent you could get something for Emmanuel Sanders, to the extent you get something for Chris Harris Jr., and just go ahead and let nature take its course, then so be it. But it, I think it all depends upon what kind of offers you get because the bottom line is the Broncos aren't going to win a ton of games this year if they keep those three guys. At what point do you just admit that that's where it is. And, and this is different from the Dolphins' strategic going into the season, let's go ahead and suck and try to get Tua Tonga-Vailoa next year or maybe Trevor Lawrence the following year. This is realizing that it's over. For the Broncos, four weeks in, it's over. This isn't the 1992 San Diego Chargers are going to win 12 in a row and make it to the playoffs. It's done for the Broncos. And four weeks from now, they'll have even more evidence as to whether or not it's done. I, I, I think you at least consider it the question is, is John Elway willing to roll the dice and move those guys for picks when there's a chance maybe next year he's not the guy who's going to be making them? I think you can only tank as a general manager if you have the job security of being able to tell the owner, I had to tank because the guy before me left such a bad team behind. John Elway, the guy before him is him. He's been there too long for him to be able to claim Oh well, it's not my fault. I was in. I inherited a bad team. I think John Elway needs to win to save his job. Hey, look, John Elway's got a Super Bowl that he has won while serving as the GM of the team, and and it was his ability to recruit Peyton Manning at a time when everyone else wanted him that made the difference. But the development of quarterbacks, the identification of quarterbacks, the guys they brought in through the draft, whether it's Brock Osweiler, Trevor Simeon, Paxton Lynch. And who knows what Drew Locke's going to be. We're probably going to find out sooner rather than later once his, his injury heals because Joe Flacco hasn't been the answer yet and Case Keenum wasn't the answer last year. At some point, at some point, you just have to say one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time doesn't have it when it comes to identifying great quarterbacks. 
But, uh, I, yeah, I don't think that tanking is going to help him in any way, shape, or form. And uh, the question becomes what kind of an offer may they get. And, and you know, that, that's the question. When you look at the impact that Khalil Mack had last year on the fly, traded by the Raiders to the Bears a week before the start of the regular season, if you're one of these teams that's out there and you're just kind of hovering and you'd like to give your pass rush a kick in the ass and you expect to be low in the draft order anyway, what's a first-round pick for the guy that may put you over the top? And that's the question that some of these teams are going to have to ask. So it's the same thing with Jalen Ramsey. If Von Miller would be available, and even if, here's the thing, if Von Miller catches wind of the when he's with this team that is falling apart and has been a loser for the last two and a half seasons, if he catches wind of the fact that somebody's interested in trading for him and he could potentially go play for a contender and get back to a Super Bowl, maybe he wants out. Maybe he wants to move on. And maybe it's not about what the Broncos want to do. Maybe there's a point where this takes on a life of its own. I hadn't thought about it until right now, and that's why I'm glad we answer these questions because it plants ideas in my head that sometimes get me into trouble, but other times end up laying the foundation for what what will transpire. And uh, MDS, if I'm, you know, the Eagles, if I'm the Cowboys can't afford him, uh, the Chiefs already have their their guys set. But, you know, think about the teams that are just kind of right in that in that conversation, in that mix, and could break one way or the other. It's worth making a phone call to see what it would take to get Von Miller. A- absolutely. And and that's a, that's a player who can make an enormous difference to a playoff contender down the stretch. He could come in right away, contribute right away, doesn't have to learn a whole system, just has to be told, go in there and your job is go get the quarterback. And he could make a huge difference to some team. Yeah, and you know what? We have all that that uh, speculation and debate and discussion and watch him, watch him end up with the Patriots by the time it's all said and done. They, they tend to swoop in when you least expect it and do the thing that seems obvious, but that you would think on the surface they would never do. All right, one thing we never do is, is uh, talk for too long. Well, sometimes I do. But we try to keep this as close to an hour as possible when MBS is joining me. We're going to call it for now. I'll do more of these later in the week. I'll answer all your questions. Thanks for submitting so many good ones today. And we will do this again next Tuesday. It'll be week five awards before you know it. MDS, thanks as always. And everybody, will see you soon. I could use a good ass kick. I'll be very honest with you. Ah, uh, definitely. The defense is wrong. I don't like your attitude.